Hello, and thank you for joining us for this bonus episode of the Freedom from the Struggle podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Corelli. Tonight's episode, we're going to cover a lesser-known exorcism story. This is the story of the exorcism of Michael Taylor. Now, in order to tell this story, we have to take you to Onset, which is a little town in West Yorkshire, England. This community has a population in 1974 of about 17,000 people. And this quiet little community where 31-year-old Michael Taylor and his wife Christine lived with their five sons was kind of an idyllic place to raise children. However, nobody in that community would have guessed that one day Michael would become a murderer. Now, this family wasn't rich, but they were definitely comfortable as Michael worked as a butcher. However, one day he had an accident where he hurt his back, which prohibited him from performing his duties as a butcher. And during this time in England, it should be noted that there was a massive recession. So finding work was virtually impossible. And so this once comfortable family began to suffer financial struggles, which sent Michael into a deep depression because he couldn't provide for his family. And he seemed to kind of internalize that and, and really struggle, uh, with this depression that I would consider situational. Now, let me pause here a little bit. As a therapist, I'm well-trained in depression, but let's kind of break it down in some simpler terms um, because I think this is important to the story. Now, many people can be diagnosed with what's considered clinical depression, which in, in a nutshell means that it's a biological chemical disorder that exists within a person. And regardless of circumstances, that depression kind of ebbs and flows in that person's life because it's uh, psychologically a chemical imbalance within the body. But there's also something that would be considered situational depression. So some of you listening may actually have a diagnosis of depression, which was given to you by a doctor. But I think most of us would look back at our lives and say there were times, although I don't have a depressive disorder, I was situationally depressed. The circumstances of my life at that time indicated that there was just too much for me to handle and I became depressed. And I think in this case, Michael's depression may or may not have been clinical just by the information that we have. I would say it's more situational. Now, I was three years old in 1974, so I'm in no way saying I'm giving you a formal diagnosis of Michael. But what I am saying is just from what we know, this appears to be situational. He was doing fine, lost his ability to work, and he began to spiral. And I think that's important to the story. And there will be a, a couple of bookmarks that I want you to put in your mind during this story, and that would be the first one. Now back to the story. As his friends began to watch him decline, they started to make suggestions. And one of those suggestions, of course, was for him to maybe attend church. And somebody recommended a local fellowship group that was meeting that was a little more, I would say, outside of the box in terms of the conventional church. In this little community, there were a handful of churches, but this fellowship was not really associated. It was more of a splinter group that had set out to kind of do their own thing. And they were very charismatic in nature and they were fun. They were different than the stuffy churches that the Taylors had avoided so thus far in their lives. And so I think another bonus that the friend saw as a, as a potential for the Taylors was that this fellowship also professed to be into faith healing, which of course would have been a huge blessing for Michael and his family. So they began to attend. Now this group was led by a 22-year-old lay preacher named Marie Robinson. Now keep in mind, in 1974, it would have been very uncommon for a younger lay female to be leading a, a congregation or a church group 
And so this may have been also one of the the draws to this congregation because it was definitely outside of the norm, which the tailors considered a beautiful thing. They actually loved it. They loved the fellowship so much that it wasn't very long at all where they began to host the meetings in their own house. Unfortunately, most people saw right away that Michael was enamored with Marie. Now, she was a 22-year-old, reported attractive female, and Michael was in a very difficult place in his life. And so Marie seemed to want to help him, and he, of course, you know, was very interested in her, which appeared to be more than just as a minister. At this time, Michael's mental health was just continuing to become a, a detriment to their family more so than even just a few weeks before. Um, for example, one night it was reported that he was in extreme fear and stated that he was afraid of the moon. And so Marie stayed up with him all night. They spoke in tongues, trying some charismatic interventions. And, you know, he kind of seemed to pull through. However, it was noted at this time that Although Michael was doing well during the church sessions and interventions, he was becoming angrier, often fighting with Christine, uh, you know, exhibiting anger towards her, not just about his current situation. About this time, as the meetings of this congregation progressed, Michael witnessed Marie perform a deliverance ministry session on a female member of the group. And remember, I said that I wanted you to bookmark a couple of uh, places in this story in your mind. This would also be another one. So Michael did witness a deliverance ministry session over a female group member. Now, Michael, as he continued to spiral, continued to spend a ton of time with Marie as she was attempting to help him. But many people in the group and Christine included, began to suspect that there was more going on than just ministry because they were spending not only a lot of time together, but they were spending a lot of time together alone. And this came to a head one day where Christine's suspicions were so pronounced that she made a decision that she would actually confront them in one of the group meetings. So kind of put that in your head a little bit. Instead of pulling them aside, uh, Marie and or Michael, she just held it in, came to the group and said, I think you two are having an affair. Now, oddly, the group made a decision that Michael and Marie should go into a room and work that out together. Now, as a former minister, I would tell you that uh, situations like this are not commonly handled by sending the two into a room alone to work out these issues when that was the issue in the first place. But some logic from somewhere surfaced that said that was the best thing for them to do at the time. Now, this is important because the two emerged after some time together and stated that God had given them victory over their passions. Now, it should be noted that Marie, in later statements, said that it was at this moment that Michael had tried to kiss her, but she refused. Now, to me, this is contradictory, because why would you state that you were both given victory over your passions when it was him that tried to kiss you? But I think at this point, we can see that there is something inappropriate going on, and maybe we will never know the extent of what it was. But if the group was noticing and Christine was noticing, then they make this formal statement. I think Marie was more culpable than she lets on. What's crazy, though, about this intervention is, is after professing victory over their passions, during that same group meeting, Michael became angry and actually uh, attacked Marie physically and verbally. Um, she stated that she was actually in fear of her life and claimed that he transformed into kind of an animalistic figure. She actually used the term bestial, that his appearance became bestial 
And if she wouldn't have um, called on the name of Jesus, that she would have died. It's interesting, too, that she says she began to pray in tongues, and so did Michael, even though he was attacking her. So just kind of keep that in the back of your mind as well. Michael later claimed, just as a quick aside, that Marie was a secret Satanist, and this was all her fault, that she was responsible for the evil that was in him. And we'll kind of cover that a little bit later in the podcast. But for now, let's just kind of go back to this point in history. Michael continues to spiral. Family and friends continue to be worried about him, even though he's doing this fellowship thing, it's not working apparently. Um, and he's actually getting worse. So somehow, some way he fell into the care of an Anglican vicar or an Anglican priest by the name of Peter Vincent. And Peter Vincent and his wife were known as a couple who performed exorcisms. And so through some conversation, the Vincents decided to invite Michael and Christine into their home. And it stated that during this meeting that Michael began to lash out, so much so that he actually picked up their cat and threw it out the window, claiming that the cat was possessed. So, you know, if you put that visual in your mind, Peter Vincent didn't need to hear anymore. He was set on the fact that Michael needed an exorcism. So he began to put a team together. And so on October 5th of 1974, Michael was invited to St. Thomas Church where an exorcism would be performed. Now, part of this team that Peter Vinson had put together was a minister by the name of Reverend Raymond Smith and his wife. And during this uh, exorcism, the beginning stages, Michael began to exhibit the common signs of possession, growling, writhing, biting, spitting, profanities, etc. And so they decided to tie him to the floor for their safety. Now, this is where it's going to get a little odd for you. And as somebody who has worked in deliverance ministry, I can tell you that what I'm about to detail to you is not the norm. This is simply the methods of Peter Vincent, because I would consider these methods pretty severe. It stated that there was a wooden cross that Michael considered very valuable to him, so they decided to burn it, stating that it was tainted. He was verbally abused. He was doused in holy water, not sprinkled, doused. Wooden crosses were shoved into his mouth. He was forced to confess sins that he had not even committed. And there's even reports of physical abuse. So again, I could assure you that these are not common practices in deliverance ministry or even exorcism from formal members of a Catholic or an Anglican church. These methods seem to be pretty severe and I would assume uh, were very detrimental to Michael as a person. But again, we'll discuss that here in a little bit. After about eight hours in the morning, uh, following the evening of severe um, deliverance interventions, we'll say, Peter Vincent and the Reverend Mr. Smith were tired. They were exhausted and felt that they couldn't go on. So they stated that they would break and they would come back and finish the exorcism. At this time, Peter Vincent reported that he had exorcised 40 demons out of Michael Taylor, including blasphemy, bestiality, incest, and many more. But that there were three demons still remaining inside Michael Taylor, including violence, insanity, and murder. So just to recap, 40 demons are gone, but there's still three demons remaining, and violence, insanity, and murder would not be considered lesser demons but they were content in what they had done and wanted to move forward. Now, it definitely needs to be noted that Reverend Smith's wife told them at that point, you can't quit. You have to continue because those demons still inside Michael will cause him to kill his wife. She was ignored. They went home. The Taylors went home. 
And about 10 o'clock that next morning, Michael murdered Christine. Now, right off the bat, when I first heard this story, my first thought was what happened to the children? And by the grace of God, they were at their grandparents' home because of the exorcism the evening before. They were not home, or we all know what would have happened. Because Michael was so um, in the throes of this thing that he was struggling with, that he not only killed Christine, but he mutilated her beyond comprehension. And I've refused to give the details of this because it's so grotesque. It, it, I don't want to give credit where credit isn't due, but let's just say he not only mutilated Christine, but he also mutilated the family poodle beyond recognition. And so I would caution you that if you go on to study this story, and there are several podcasts that you can hear this story on, and I'll put some in the show notes, definitely some of the ones that I used uh, for this podcast to give credit where credit is due, but also to give you some resources if you choose to study. With that being said, I would also caution you during the details of the mutilation at this point in the story, because they're grotesque in a way that is pure evil as far as I'm concerned, and maybe not necessary to understanding the story. So a little uh, parental discretion is advised, if you will, uh, but that's up to you. So as we continue here, he mutilated his family or his wife, mutilated the dog, and then was seen later that morning, just roaming around the neighborhood, naked, covered in blood. Police were obviously called, and when the constable approached him and asked him where the blood was from, he said it was the blood of Satan, curled up in the fetal position and laid on the ground. He was taken to the hospital, but at the same time, his wife's body was discovered by another constable at the family home. Now, again, to reiterate the brutality of this crime, it should be noted that one of the one of the constables stated to another officer who was there, don't go inside there. You don't want to see what I just saw. It is so bad. And I've seen some of the worst that it'll never leave you basically. So I wouldn't do it if I were you. And we hear in the story that the officer went in and looked anyway, because curiosity kills the cat, but he um, regretted that as well. So it wasn't long after Michael was taken from the hospital and put into custody. Now, it should be noted that there were no weapons found. All of this mutilation occurred what appears to be by hand. Now, a psychologist in the trial said that the torture of the exorcism triggered his psychosis. The barrister, the judge, also blamed the church. So you can see that the, the non-church players in this story are wanting to blame the church, stating that it was actual the torture of the exorcism and all that he endured at the hands of the church that was the cause of him losing his mind. Now, the Anglican Church originally distanced themselves from Peter Vincent, stating that it wasn't sanctioned and that their practices aren't like this. But they later came out and said that we're going to change the way that we approve exorcisms, including having this panel of people that includes a psychiatrist that has to approve it. But they went on to say, that if the exorcism would have just been completed, that this would never happened. So although they kind of denied the exorcism in and of itself at first, their eventual claim was that the exorcism would have, to completion, would have been successful and prevented the murder. Now, at this point, you know, what, what happened to Michael? Well, it should be known that Michael was found not guilty by reason of insanity. And he was sentenced to two years in a psych hospital where when he completed that, 
was then to attend another psych hospital for another two years. So if you're not paying attention, you did maybe miss that. He only served four years for this brutal crime. Four years. And then he was released based on the fact that he had received adequate psychological care and that he was now fit to be released to the community. I know that sounds crazy, and I would say that it is crazy, but that's what the judicial system had deemed appropriate at the time. Now, it should be noted that Michael attempted suicide about four times, nothing to success, although one time was a little more severe than the other three. But he basically goes into obscurity for 30 years. However, in 2005, he was arrested for indecent contact with a minor. So basically, he was touching a teenage girl inappropriately and was arrested. He spent one week in police custody where they say he exhibited signs of possession. And also during the trial for this crime, he exhibited signs of the possession. But it seemed like when he was in between those situations, he was fine. He did plead guilty to two counts and received three years of community service as well as outpatient psychological treatment. So again, I think this is important to note maybe for reasons that you don't, you don't realize what I'm saying. He only received three years of community service for violating this young girl. So he received four years for a murder and he received three years of community service in the community without patient psych treatment for assaulting a teenage girl. Definitely not justice, but we'll get to that in a second. Now, the story kind of tapers off there, but there's a couple things that I want to bring to your attention. The Vincent's daughter claimed that during the night of the exorcism in their home, that she witnessed a metal cross melt and warp at the time the exorcism was going on. However, her boyfriend claims that some of this may or may not be relevant or true even because he claims that Mrs. Vincent was actually kind of the person who wore the pants in the family and that she was the one that was forcing Peter Vincent to do the exorcism. Of course, this is all speculation. Now, one thing I noticed during some of my research is how coherent that Michael was during the interrogation. And again, if you do your own research, because I don't want to dull up uh, this podcast with every single detail, but he is very coherent in his speech and in understanding everything that went on, including, including blaming the church for his behavior. But he's very coherent, which is very contradictory to the times where he's in custody exhibiting signs of possession, as well as when he's on trial exhibiting signs of possession, lashing out, etc. So I'm going to be honest with you. I picked this story because it is extremely controversial. And I don't think anybody in their right mind could look at this case and be 100% for sure what is going on here. And as somebody who lived in the world of psychology as well as a pastor, these, this kind of a story is the dichotomy of my career. Because oftentimes as a deliverance minister, you get called out to help. And it is truly mental illness. It is very much evident. Now, some deliverance ministers would say that there's a spirit of mental illness, which there is, but they would blame that for all mental illness. And I think that's a little too general. At the same time, some psychologists and psychiatrists would say that there is no uh, spiritual battle, that it's all psychological, and the church. Uh, speaking of demons is ludicrous because everybody can be treated with mental health treatment, which is also too general. 
in my opinion. And this story is my argument for both sides. Because let's be honest here. What did happen? Is this mental illness? Or is this possession? Well, I'm going to answer that question. Is this mental illness? Or is this possession? And my answer is yes. You see, I believe that mental illness was in play. But I also believe that there was demonic forces behind the scenes as well. Now, there is the proverbial story of the chicken and the egg, and that is definitely apropos in this situation, because was the mental illness the catalyst for demons to find a vulnerable human being that they could torment? That's possible. Were demons tormenting a man able to create a mental breakdown, which then became a diagnosable mental illness? I think that's also the truth. But when you think of it that simplistically, that's where the debate lies. And so what I want to do here is maybe take you to a different frame of reference. As you've heard me say in previous podcasts, let's challenge your belief systems a little bit. Now, studying psychology led me to several different theories, but one of the pervasive kind of basic tenets of psychology is, is people struggle with mental, physical, or emotional problems. So even in an Axis 5 diagnosis, you will break down personality disorders, biological factors, even global assessment functioning scores that would say what your sociological circumstances are about. And so it's a mental, physical, and emotional kind of situational type of diagnosis that is formed. But what psychology shies away from is the word spiritual, because the word spiritual instantly creates a connotation of religion. But spirituality is so much bigger than religion. And I actually blame religious people for overusing the word spirituality, kind of claiming it as their own. They are the problem and have created this confusion about what spirituality is. Because spirituality outside of religion are your beliefs, the way you approach the world, your soul. And we know spirituality exists because the multitude of faiths throughout the world. It's still a very small percentage of people that profess to be atheists or even agnostic. You know, you, you look at the immense populations of people on this planet, still the bulk of them believe in some sort of higher power. And that higher power, that belief system creates a spirituality in a person. And when a spirituality begins to deteriorate, things like morals and values and hope and faith and beliefs in a positive future or beliefs in something bigger than yourself begin to crumble and the beliefs are replaced with despair and hopelessness and hate and anger and depression and anxieties and fears. You see, psychologically, you can't quantitate those things. They're, they're not calculable, but spiritually they are. So you can't scientifically say on a scale of one to 10, how much hope do you have? And that's what's called the Likert scale. When they put something on a scale like that to see where you are, well, you could easily say, well, I'm an eight, but beyond that, what is hope? How is hope generated? Where does hope live in a person? And you can get some psychologists that'll want to challenge me their answers will be too basic. 
most people's hope lies in their spirituality, in their belief systems. And so I'm going down this road because Michael was mentally in despair. He was physically in despair with his back problems. So his depression may have come situationally from his back problem, which took him to a place where he couldn't work, he couldn't provide for his family, which then created the situational depressive symptoms that you see he was down, he was hopeless, and that starts to gravitate to the spiritual problems that he had. His thoughts of himself as a man, his belief that he wasn't going to be able to get a job and that his family would suffer. Put yourself in his shoes. If you're the breadwinner and you can't provide, how would you feel? How would you view yourself? How would you view your relationship with your higher power? Or if you don't have a higher power, would you start to wonder if you should have a higher power that can provide you with hope? You see, psychology doesn't cover enough bases because they don't include that spiritual piece. But as somebody who worked in the profession, as well as a minister, I would always say, we need to get you mentally, physically, and spiritually healthy. And if those three things are covered, you're, you're killing it. You're doing great. But if one or two or all three of those things start to deteriorate, you're going to be in a place that you don't want to be way sooner than you think you will. And so that's what interventions are about in terms of a psychological intervention or even a pastoral intervention. So in this case, Michael's mental and physical problems were exhibited for the world to see. So he sought out spiritual help. Now, there's a couple interesting things that, although speculative conjecture sometimes is a very valuable piece of the puzzle, uh, which is conjecture, you have to look at Marie, this 22-year-old lay preacher who had made a decision to spend an exorbitant amount of time alone with Michael. Now, I'll be the first to say as a minister, I haven't done everything right the whole time. As a matter of fact, that's the opposite. I've made several mistakes in ministry, some of them severe, some of them kind of not as severe, but could have been because we have a desire to help people. But Marie spending time alone with a vulnerable man is a problem, just like a male minister spending time alone with a female parishioner would be a problem. So you can see that boundaries didn't exist, which tells me that Marie may or not have been centered in Jesus and what Jesus would have her do. Now, whether that was because she was so willing to help others at the expense of reason and herself, or whether, as Michael said, she was a secret closeted Satanist who was kind of destroying her little congregation with deception. Because keep in mind, when she was performing a deliverance session in front of Michael, she was praying in tongues with Michael. In a lot of their individual sessions, she was praying in tongues. So she had taught Michael this practice. But if he is violently attacking her in a later um, confrontation in front of the group and is speaking in tongues while he's attacking her, either she didn't teach him what spiritual tongues are actually about or she had taught him a different tongue and deceptively the congregation she had was not aware of what she really was. But regardless of whether she was just a person with a lack of boundaries or she was a 
wolf in sheep's clothing, this is the person that Michael went to see for spiritual help and obviously didn't get the help that he needed, but instead became more caught up in the spiral that he was in. Now, it would be easy for me to say very easily, which most people do in this story, that this is simply mental illness. He was depressed. He started going to this church. It caused a mental break in him because he was putting too much value into this charismatic church. And then watching her perform an exorcism, he developed the thoughts that if you're misbehaving, that it must be possession. Then he goes through this exorcism where he's severely tortured, which causes a enormous mental break where he just detaches from reality. Later on diagnosed as schizophrenic. So did he develop the schizophrenia at that time? Was it already manifesting previous times? I don't know, but at least at this time, a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist could say that's when he had his break. That's when he developed schizophrenia. That's when he thought his wife was evil. So he had to kill her as well as the dog that he was covered in the blood of Satan because he had killed somebody who was possessed and that he was not culpable because they had put evil in him. So you can see that the contradictions, the, the, just the overall craziness of his conversations would lead you quickly to believe that this is a psychological problem. Case closed. However, let's talk about some things that we have in terms of evidence. And we'll start small. So the Vincent's daughter claims that a metal cross in their home melted on the night of the exorcism. Now I can tell you during my time of performing deliverance ministries on a fairly frequent basis, there were times where, you know, it, this could happen during a service, but most of the time this would happen from me getting a phone call from a friend or a family member to try to come and help somebody. And there were several times where I'd have a meeting set up for a day or two later, and I would receive visits from demons or I would receive manifestations from demons, I would say as a kind of a minuscule warning for me to stay away. I've even had demons speak to me and tell me to stay away. So this is a common practice amongst people who work in deliverance ministry, that manifestations will occur even away from the deliverance in order to create fears and push a, a minister or somebody providing deliverance away so they don't help the person in need. And so although that may seem like a small detail, that's something you will often see. Um, I've even had uh, somebody recently who I've helped that I've kind of shied away from helping because this person doesn't want to change their lifestyle they want to keep going where the demons go and keep welcoming demons back into their life. But when it gets too heavy, then they want to call me and get a quick prayer to kind of get them away for a while so they can go back to living the lifestyle. Well, the reality of that is, is I've stopped talking to this person because when I pray those prayers, I get attacked. And although I'm a big boy and I know, you know, how to, how to win these battles, it's still a detriment to myself and my family, which is why a lot of deliverance ministers don't want to really help people unless they're believers committed to making the changes they need to make. Because picking fights with demons often leads to manifestations or even attacks from demons towards the person who's trying to help. So that cross melting was a key component to me that something may be going on. Now, let's talk a little bit about his behavior on the night of the exorcism. It's very, very possible that because he had watched some shows, that, keep in mind the exorcism movie had just been released shortly before this. So if he had witnessed that movie, he would know 
kind of how to put on an act, but this was going on to the point where they chained him to the floor. Now, I don't have the evidence as to whether that was their method or whether he was exhibiting those signs, but other people saw those signs, including Marie. Now, those of us, again, who have worked in deliverance ministry will tell you that the concept of somebody's face distorting or morphing into a bestial type image is very, very common. These are those moments where those who are in attendance of something like this, who have never seen it before, would become terrified and run out of a room, perhaps, because it's in those moments where you realize this is beyond a medical or a psychological problem. This is something different because a person's face who is writhing in pain or doing their best to maybe, you know, hold their breath and clinch their jaws, you know, those things could be faked. But when you're looking at a person and they, their face turns into something different, I believe this is where we get the concept of a werewolf from because I have seen faces that have morphed into more of a dog-like face than a human face where the snout becomes pronounced and the eyes change. If you've seen that, that is not something that a mental illness can create. That is spiritual. That is possession. And this group of people, including Marie, stated that while he was attacking her, that he became bestial. That is a for sure sign of possession because you can give me no other explanation. But in order to keep this shorter than longer, let's get to the primary reason why I think possession was also a factor here. The severity of the mutilation of his wife and his dog, although I refuse to give you the details here, are evidence of somebody who was not physically themselves. Now, let me explain. It is not uncommon for somebody in a mental health crisis to exhibit large feats of strength, you know, kind of a I would say a berserk type of frenzy during one of those mental health crises. However, the details of this mutilation are beyond the physicality of what a human being is capable of. Now, some of you will hear this story. And you'll hear it from a different perspective and you'll say, well, how do you know that, Anthony? How do you know that somebody who's just crazy, quote unquote, couldn't do these things? Well, my challenge to you is to say, what would it take for you to be able to do that? Not only psychologically, but physically. And as you've heard that is if you choose to hear the details, you'll understand what I mean. And I'll break my own rule here a little bit. When somebody can pull the limbs off of a dog, literally tear it limb from limb. That's not psychological. You can argue with me all you want, but I've seen many quote unquote crazy people. I've seen psychopathy in many forms. I am actually somebody who studied psychopathy and what's considered abnormal behavior in the psychological world intensely. One of my specialties actually is personality disorders. So I've seen violent, antisocial, narcissistic psychopaths. And even in those cases, physically alone, some of these things could not have been done, especially with somebody of Michael's stature. There was something else going on, something spiritual. 
something demonic. Now, again, I've said I've worked with some severe psychopaths, murderers. Many of them, when interviewed, would also tell you something came over me. I mean, I was always angry or I was always antisocial or I was always not really concerned about killing people for my gang or for for my own purposes of crime or whatever the case may be. But when I could d- chose to do this heinous crime, something came over me is a very common term. Well, that, in my opinion, is where the possession comes in. So let's button this up. It's my belief, and, you know, I could be wrong, that Michael had familiar spirits around him. And we don't know his early life. But my my suspicions are is that there was always something lurking, waiting for the right moment. Maybe calculatedly caused the accident that created the back injury, but you know, that's definitely speculation. But once he began to slip mentally, I believe those demons began to work. I also believe whether bad intentions or just uninformed Marie Robinson was not fit to be a minister. And I can't, confirm nor deny Michael's claim that he was the secret sat she was a secret satanist which if she was that would you know answer a lot of questions if you will but i believe she simply was messing around with spiritual concepts that she wasn't familiar with and she helped michael not only in his mental health issues but also in his demonic possession i do believe that at the time that the Vincents saw Michael for the first time and he threw their cat out the window, they were dealing with somebody who was possessed, but they also weren't skilled enough in the mental health issues or didn't care, which led them to a very severe form of exorcism, which in my opinion was probably not necessary for Michael. And so that basically just let the demons have full control of him because now he hates the church. Now he hates God because if these are representatives of God and they've done him nothing but disservice, now he has full permission to give his life to these demons, which caused the murder. He went on to get psychological care and lived for 30 years. We don't know how he lived, but at this point, the demons were done with him, at least to some extent. So they can move on, but come back eventually and lead him to another crime of assaulting a, a child. And then, of course, he's continuing to exhibit these signs because he never received true deliverance. So here's what I'd have you know this case is definitely controversial. Some of you listening won't agree with me on any part of this and think it's purely psychological. Some of you won't agree with me and say that it's purely spiritual. Some will say that this case should have been handled differently from the start. Some of you will say I'm making excuses. But what we do know is this case is a perfect example of the muddy waters between psychology and exorcism or deliverance. And it's cases like this that the devil loves. Because if he can convince the world that deliverance isn't necessary now that we have these psychological interventions and that those religious people are simply antiquated idiots who don't understand the new developments in human behaviors, they look at people like me like I'm a imbecile. Although I may have more education and background in psychology, they think somehow I must have not taken the right classes or that I studied at a, a Christian college and that they taught me wrong. And then, of course, there's the church people, a lot of which don't believe in deliverance ministry stating that 
these things stopped happening in the first century and that demons are now more subtle and just out to kind of destroy us through more covert methods and that people don't actually get possessed. Now, you know, both sides of those are the extremes, but they're more common than you think. But here's the question. Where would you go for help? If you had a family member who was struggling like Michael, who would you call? The argument here is why didn't they take Michael to psychiatrist up front? Very good question. Definitely should have happened. All of his friends were trying to get him help, but they were obviously spiritual people who thought that the church was the best place for help. And please hear me. I love the church. We definitely should go to church, but why not get him to a psychologist at the same time? In addition, the ministers that you choose to help you use common sense and logic into their interventions. As a deliverance minister, never once was it in my thought process, let alone repertoire, to shove a cross in somebody's mouth. It's a prayer. It's getting them to understand that they need Jesus, that they need a savior, a deliverer, that if they commit their life to Jesus, that there's no room for this demon to inhabit and that they have to renounce the things that got him there in the first place. Maybe Michael needed to renounce his lust for this minister. Maybe he needed to renounce the sin that she perpetrated on him if in fact that happened. Maybe he needed to renounce his depression and his hopelessness. And with a good therapist, a Christian therapist, and some love from a church community that was willing to pray with him and pray deliverance over him, I think this story could have been different. And so my question to you is, what do you, what do you really know about this help that's called deliverance? And where would you go for help? I'm going to give you kind of a, a crazy statement here, but this podcast isn't designed to perform deliverance all over the world, over the airwaves. I want to pray with people and I want to help as many people as I can. This program is designed for information. This program is designed to get people who may not seek out help through other means, but maybe love to listen to podcasts and maybe are into stories and and a practical teaching more than a, uh, a charismatic church that they've, that they would squirm at the thought of walking in the doors. And you might eventually go to a church like that, but maybe this Avenue, this media is a way for you to get the knowledge you need to go to the next steps of your journey. And as you hear this story, I want you to think of a time where maybe you were depressed or you were struggling and think of a time where if things wouldn't have fallen into place, that you could have gone down a path of finding the wrong help or spiraling out of control, thinking that you were getting help, but you really weren't. And I want you to think about how you would go about asking for help and how multifaceted that help should look. And I want to make sure that you understand exactly what I just said. It would be easy for me to say, go to church, find the help you need, period. But when I say multifaceted, what I mean is find a Christian therapist who's well-versed in psychology, but also very much tied to a spiritual background. Find a minister who won't patronize you or worse, minimize your manifestations or your suspicions of a demonic presence in your life. Many Christians will, I would even say mock you or 
definitely look down on you because their beliefs don't line up with the Bible. So finding a therapist, finding a good church home, finding Christians who will listen to you and do time with you and get in the mud with you and pray with you and cry with you and love on you. That's the ways of the Bible. That's the ways of Jesus. You remember Jesus spent time going throughout the countryside, seeking out people and helping them. The the Bible says that if every miracle that Jesus performed was, was put in books, it would require volumes upon volumes because this is what this guy was doing. He was loving on people. He wasn't beating them down with their sin. He told them not to sin, but he also told them they were forgiven first. He, he told them the gospel before we called it the gospel, the good news. And that's where you need to go for your help. So if you've stumbled upon this podcast and you've stumbled upon this bonus episode because you've chosen to support this podcast, as we say in the, in the regular episodes as well as here, if you think you need help, reach out to us, anthony at thestruggleseries.com. We have a team of people that goes through those emails I go through them myself, and we decide what kind of help you may need. A lot of times, the help we, we uh, recommend doesn't come from us. We have several resources that we could point you to. But if we can help you here, we will do that as well. Because this story should create a conflict in you. See, when you hear a story like The Exorcist, you're 100% sure that that person in the real story, which was a young man, by the way, not Reagan, the female of the movie, a young man who played with the Ouija board with his aunt, who was a spiritualist. When she died, he tried to seek her out, welcomed in an entity and became possessed. We know the story, but in this story, anti-Christians, atheists, scientifically minded people say this is a clear cut case of mental illness and the church is to blame for trying an intervention that was not necessary. Hardcore deliverance ministers would say that the psychologists are trying to blame mental illness when there was clear-cut signs of possession and that the minister should have never stopped the exorcism and should have kept going until all demons were exorcised. Most people I know fall in the middle. They fall into the category of, oh, that's a cool story. I like that podcast, or I like that episode, or I like that movie, but they never take the time to see how a demon can methodically deconstruct a person. And I want that to reign in your head as we conclude this podcast. Whether you are on the side of psychology or on the side of deliverance, one thing is clear this was the methodical deconstruction of Michael Taylor. And that methodical deconstruction resulted in the murder of an innocent woman, his wife, who was just in the path of this insanity that occurred here. And if you want to know where demons exist, in my opinion, find somebody who is being methodically deconstructed, and I will show you demons at work whether that be through mental illness or other means. I wanted to say this real quick. You know, my team is often going through the social medias and, you know, because my time is diverted to other, other places in this little podcast arena here, but they'll stumble upon different, um, you know, posts and they'll show them to me. And, and I saw one recently where this man was just basically on there voicing his severe despair and asking just for anybody who would reach out to help him. And I, and I, I thought, and you know, they responded, uh, through the social medias as well as we prayed as a group. But I thought for a moment that is the methodical deconstruction of a person. And I hope that person decides to go get the help they need. Um, because you know, this person, has a choice to make and and we don't live anywhere near each other for me to even, you know, try to force some help on him if I, if I could do that. 
but this person is being methodically deconstructed. And when asked if he thought this was spiritual, his response was, I don't know, but what else could it be? And to me, that answer was yes, but I don't want to admit it. Well, hopefully he's admitted it. I haven't heard anything about it. And hopefully we'll get a good news report somewhere down the road. But remember, if you feel that you're being methodically deconstructed, reach out for the help you need. Hope you've enjoyed this uh, bonus episode of the Freedom from the Struggle podcast. Remember, we're putting out episodes uh, every Wednesday. Tune in for those as well. We'd love to have you here. You're always in our prayers. Many blessings to you and have a great evening.